0: Welcome to the Gnostic Informant. I'm Jesus, Hallelujah. the Logos Incarnate, and you are
1: about to attain true Gnosis.
0: Having a cool theory like that is one thing, but having it confirmed by your colleagues through some tests, that sets it apart from other truths. So the fact that Christians believe that Jesus died and three days later came back from the dead and they call it a miracle. 500 people saw Jesus you know, after he, he was dead. <laughs> no, no. It, there's one account that says 500 people. There's a lot of steps in between there. The Big Bang fine tuning is to Jesus died for your sins. They have to make many moves to get there. Maybe, maybe the ancients had figured this out. But There's religious truths, and then there's empirical truths. If your arguments are so good, if the evidence is so obvious, because I've debated these people, it's clear, almost 100%, you know, Jesus died for your they Died and came back from the dead. Why don't Jews believe it? Why don't Muslims believe it? So if they understood the arguments, they'd, they'd be Christians. No, you, you can't possibly mean that. I mean, these rabbis, this is what they do for a living. I mean, they're professional philosophers, scholars, theologians. They know the arguments. They just don't think they're very good. And the anthropologist from Mars comes down and says, okay, which is the right religion? Uh, let's see who's got the best evidence. Well, of course, they all think they have good evidence, but they don't.
1: Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And today, Riding Shotgun, co-hosting with me, is Derek Lambert, the Lambert of God, as you say, from MythVision. everybody?
2: Thanks for inviting uh, me, brother.
1: Absolutely. And uh, our special guest is Dr. Michael Shermer, author of Giving the Devil His Due and from skeptic.com, also michaelshermer.com as well. And um, we're going to be talking about some things relating to skepticism and why we believe what we believe.
2: Absolutely. Here is the website, michaelshermer.com. Go support him, and the angels will give you wings if you do so. <laughs> and also we have skeptic.com. If you guys want to you know, move up a few tiers in the uh, abyss, if you will, um, just helping out another skeptic and checking out the podcast will obviously give you secret passwords to move up out of the ranks of hell to get through those little gates that they have, keeping you from getting out. <laughs> they say you can't get out, but we know that's absolute BS. So be sure to go check him out and support what he does anyway. <laughs> oh, should we be popping everybody on screen? Here we go.
1: <laughs> there we go. All right. So I we got a couple of clips that we want to show Dr. Shermer and get his thoughts on. And I thought we should start with the. Uh, the apes the apes mourning over the death of the, another ape or what it looks like it might not be that but it sort of looks like it so derek go ahead and pull that up
2: a research team working in zambia has released never before seen video of a community of chimpanzees reacting to death in their group a nine-year-old chimpanzee male has died in recent days Photos and videos have emerged showing great apes, notably gorillas and chimpanzees, reacting to the deaths of members of their communities. Humans might interpret the reactions as mourning, but is it? The researchers would rather not presume that the chimps are mourning the death of another.
1: I am reluctant to use that word. Um, My colleagues might have different opinions, um, but I think... uh, for the most part, we're reluctant to use the word because um, it doesn't seem to really give us any extra explanatory information. So, Dr. Shermer, first of all, I, sorry, I didn't get you, give you time to speak. Welcome uh, welcome on the show, and thanks for coming. I'm oh, happy
0: here. to be here. Yes, that was a great clip. Actually, I wrote a book about this, you know, Heavens on Earth, and I have a whole section on uh, animal mourning. I, I do think it's okay. Like, here's a picture of, of these elephants who are poking around, uh, let me see if I can get that in the in the screen there for you. Poking around in the uh, field there of these skulls, this was actually an experiment in which they put out different objects. I think it was a chunk of wood and and a skull and, and some bones. And in, in, the, in the skull, it, 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 they poked poked around more in the skull, I think, because they recognized it as one of their own. You know, there are examples of this of cetaceans like uh, whales and dolphins that seem to help uh, their fellow uh, group group mates in trouble and um, you know, there's that whole book when elephants weep and, you know, it's, it's a, it makes sense that mammals who are pair bonded and attached to one another in a social group would of course feel a, some sense of loss, if nothing else, perceptually, you know, somebody that's always around and then is not around anymore. Uh, you know, what happened and, and, you know, it's got to feel weird, like some kind of loss like that. And so I, I think that's not un, unreasonable to assume that if we see the signs in them that resemble those of humans of an emotion uh you know we apply the copernican principle to ourselves we're not special we're as as copernicus himself showed that we're not the center of the universe and darwin showed we're not the center of of life on earth we're just another species why would it be that our cognitive and emotional capacities are somehow qualitatively different from all other mammals we're a mammal so and, and just in a broader sense i apply it to solve the problem of other minds this philosophical problem of of what uh, how do i know that you two are sentient conscious beings and you're not just zombies walking around giving off cues that you're conscious and sentient and the lights are on when in fact you're just a zombie and and i'm the only one and the conversation <laughs> is actually sentient well I think that would be pretty anthropocentric. And again, applying the Pritikin principle to myself, I'm not special. So it looks like you guys are sentient and conscious and awake and, and the lights are on. And so it's reasonable to assume that. And then I would just extrapolate that circle out to include other mammals at the very least, primates for sure. But I would think uh, in, any kind of higher order mammals would uh, you know, express the kind of emotion. So why not grief? it it makes perfect sense uh for that.
1: Okay, so that's that's fascinating, but you mentioned especially primates, which brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk about is like people try to to dif- differentiate us from animals that we believe in god and have this like this inner uh uh, weird, uh feeling of some divine realm that but but I uh, I would make the case that there might be that in some animals, maybe maybe primates um I was talking to Dr. Price about this and he was saying that there's studies in Africa of, I can't remember exactly which ape it is, but there, there were, after a lightning strike, they would look up at the sky and do this. And we have, that's, that's not the same photo that I'm looking for, but that looks similar to it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but, uh, That might
0: be a bit of a reach. That might be a bit of a reach. I think, uh, what, what, what you're suggesting there or Price is suggesting, I guess, is that, um, You know, gestures up to the sky suggest that maybe we have this, uh, you know, kind of a God sense or instinct that there's something up there. I think more likely it's something like what I call agenticity, the tendency to infuse patterns with intentional agency, Mm -hmm. then, then it calls this, you know, hyperactive uh, agency, um, hyperagency detection that we see agency everywhere. Um, and it's, it's a more basic. Um, process than that. I mean, patternicity is is what I call, you know, the tendency to find meaningful patterns and random noise and agenticity, the tendency to infuse those patterns with intentional agents. So if you think about what's the difference between a, um, a, you know, you hear a rustle in the grass, is it a dangerous predator or just the wind? So first we make type one, we're more likely to make type one errors. That is assume that the rustles in the grass are dangerous predators and not the wind even if that's a even if that's an error it's a false positive you thought the russell in the grass was a dangerous predator turns out it's just the wind that's a low cost error to make if you make the other kind of error type two error where you miss the real threat then that can take you out of the gene pool your lunch you get a darwin award for (laughs) for missing out on that and 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 and, and then the next step in the, in the next move there is what's the difference between the wind and a dangerous predator? Well, the wind is an inanimate force. The dangerous predator is an intentional agent and its intention is to eat me and destroy me. So better I assume that everything out there has agency to it. So from there you know you get animism and spirit spiritism and you know the idea that the rocks and trees and 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 the weather and everything has some kind of agency behind it. And uh, and from there you get, uh, you know, polytheism and then eventually monotheism and the idea that everything happens for a reason. And that is what most, you know, modern monotheists believe. They think everything happens for a reason, even even say Buddhists who believe in some kind of fatalism. You know, everything happens for a reason, as if there's some mystical force pushing things around in the cosmos to adjust for some cosmic justice uh that that uh you know is is all worked out in the end of course none of this is true but it, but it's you know it's the cognitive psychology behind it of why we would think like that and so it's not that we have a god gene or a, a god module in the brain it's a it's a it's a larger concept of which culture then builds on it i mean monotheism is relatively new it's only a few thousand years old uh, maybe three to four thousand years old, say uh, and, and and it was pretty uncommon until you know just the, the last maybe thousand or two two thousand years. Uh, so the, but, but much older and broader is you know dis- is the idea that there's intentional agents of which gods are one, demons and angels and aliens and conspiracies and you know uh, social coalitions, coalitional groups that could be dangerous to us are another form of agency detection that uh, we're more likely to make type one than type two errors. And that's one explanation to explain why people believe conspiracy theories, because enough of them are true that it pays to be a little paranoid, you know, Mm -hmm. that maybe they are out to get me because sometimes they really are out to get me. (laughs) So (laughs) There's kind of a logic behind it.
2: Dr. Shermer, in the cloud thing that he's talking about, and we're going to play a clip for you here in a second, actually, to kind of give you this really interesting patternicity thing that Uh, we're always seeking things that we relate to. This is why the gods look like objects on earth. If it's India, you're going to see some animal mixed or Egyptian. You're going to see animals mixed with humans and things like this. You even see it in the Bible. But the interesting thing is, is there was Dr. Robert Price actually was mentioning that he knew an anthropologist who was in the jungles, I think in Africa. And I think it was a chimpanzee, but either way, lightning surrounded the sky. You ended up seeing this, um, lightning bolts strike and when the lightning bolts struck down at the earth uh nearby you know terrifying everyone including the humans there the monkey looked up at the sky and went because it assumed that that thing was out to get me and it is assuming agency in this hmm. in this cloud and the, and, and I hard just to thought know, it,
0: hard to, yeah hard to know it what just, it's thinking there it's right again, it's a I'm behavior just, we're observing a behavior Maybe right. it's start maybe it's more of a startle response or a fear response I, I'd, I'd have to see the video I'm not familiar with that particular one uh, if you can find it that might be helpful but it, it's easy to see how we would look at it and go that's the, you know that's the kind of thing I would do if you know if I was angry at the gods above or something yeah. like that hard to say if that's what they were really thinking this is a problem by the way in in, uh, in ethology and the study of animal behavior is imposing you know I've, I've, I've made the, the, the case for why it's okay to anthropomorphize somewhat. But on the flip side, um, you know, there's there's research with language uh, use in primates, uh, particularly uh, chimps and gorillas, and, uh, in which they, they're taught sign language. So there's a subjective element of interpreting if the primate actually made a sign, you know, one of the sign language sign, and strung them together in a certain sequence that looks or sounds like what would be a sentence we might make, and therefore infer that you know they have language like we do they just don't have vocal cords but that that research has been uh, challenged by scientists they they think there's there's too much there's overinterpretation mm. of of what the signs actually are or what the what the animals actually doing that it, it may not be stringing together signs into a coherent grammatical sentence at all there may be a certain element of randomness to it or just a simpler you know skinnerian uh, uh, a model in which you're they're reinforced for making certain gestures that get a reward, and therefore it's not language at all. It's just behavior responding to reinforcement, like a pigeon would or a rat would, who we would not impugn with language.
1: So you think that the the looking for patterns everywhere is sort of a, a result of evolution. And it's sort of a, a way to, it's sort of helpful in a way. Like you said, it's survival tactics being passed down in the Yeah, field.
0: that's right. Yeah, right. Right. So, in, in other words, what I'm trying to answer, the problem I'm trying to explain with this model is why people believe weird things. You know, the title of my first book, and the harder problem, why smart people believe weird things. And the answer is short, in short, well, the, the common answer you get is whether, you know, people are just dumb or ignorant, uneducated, superstitious, whatever, gullible. That doesn't really explain anything. In fact, I think it's more of a feature than a bug. It's not a problem in our cognition. This is the way that's the default mode is to assume more things are real than not. Just in case, particularly if they, you know, pose a threat or could pose a threat. Therefore, uh, you know, you just you kind of fall into that that patternicity process. And there's kind of a logic to it rather than it being a problem that uh, you know, that, that's something wrong with our cognition. There's nothing wrong with our cognition. That's, that, that, that's normal. So it takes science and critical thinking and rationality to kind of overcome that propensity to do that. Of course, that's what we've been doing for centuries, philosophy and science, developing tools to get around our confirmation bias and hindsight bias and my side bias and, and <laughs> right. uh, you know, so forth that that's, you know, th- th- those are normal. Uh, what we do today in the modern world, you know, employing reason and rationality and the tools of science is unusual.
1: So we're talking about patternicity and I actually made a clip. I actually put together some videos that are supposedly real clouds. They, they look convincing. I mean, Mm -hmm. let's, let's be honest, who knows? There could be some, uh, video editing going on, but these are the ones that people say are real. I put them together and I added some dramatic music to make it more real and uh, just to show what you're talking about. So go ahead and play that clip, Derek. think are you convinced they're real now
0: <laughs> i've seen some of those i think a couple of those are photoshopped um yeah, but i have a, i have a whole slideshow of hundreds of those kinds of things that classic patternicity of course um there's even a tweet a twitter account faces and things yeah, i think it's called faces and things and they post them every day you know there's just millions of them literally of course we're only so if we just do our two by two matrix with four cells you know, the, the upper left cell here is, you know, uh, things that look like stuff that we recognize. Of course, we're, we're leaving out the other three cells, which are the gazillion things that uh, random patterns in the uh, environment that don't look like anything uh, or actual objects that we make <laughs> or are human or whatever, uh, in which there are no clouds that look like those. And then, of course, the fourth cell is just nothing. And uh, so we have to be careful about you know, this is kind of a signal detection problem. To, to what extent do uh, uh, d- does a apparently random pattern actually represent a real phenomenon? Or is it just, you know, selective perception? And, um, and once you conceive of it in that two by two matrix with four cells, it's obvious that, you know, we're just picking out the ones that we happen to recognize, you know, bat- bats or birds or whatever. Look, my dog looking around, he's not going to see the same thing we see. You know, so we recognize faces. Particularly, the reason that Twitter accounts call faces and things is because instead of hands and things or legs and things or torsos and things, um, we we evolved the capacity to detect faces. There's even an area in the temporal lobe called the fusiform gyrus that's allocated mainly for facial recognition. And we know that people with damage to this fusiform gyrus in the temporal lobe. have a difficulty seeing faces some some people are just face blind they cannot see a face uh even their own face they, they'll sit there in front of the mirror and you know, oliver sacks writes about this you know they are looking at themselves in the mirror they don't see a face they see like oh it's an apple with some slits whatever they don't they literally don't see a face right so you know we know this is programmed you know we have a capacity to see faces and things because faces are important to humans for social interactions. And we read uh, emotions in people's faces. We look for tells and cues and micro expressions to see if somebody's lying or how honest they are. And of course, we attach and bond to the faces of our parents when we're born. It's kind of an imprinting there. So faces are—you don't need much; just two dots and a little slit like that, and people go, "Oh, that's, that's a face." Again, I have hundreds of examples in my slideshow, and uh, and so it, it's quite common. So we're programmed to see those. So naturally, you know, you can run clips like that all day, and we do see them. Some of them are fascinating, you know, and uh, but of course that you know it's it's a human imposition on a random pattern. Um, now I do distinguish with patternicity. I actually technically define it as tendency to find meaningful patterns in both meaningless and meaningful noise because sometimes patterns are real and so that we we want to know and that's what science is all about you know the the relationship between the increase in co2 gases and global warming you know that's a pattern is it real or is it not could be random you know it could be could be meaningful looks like it's real (laughs) despite what the skeptics say but for a while people are going oh i don't know if this global warming thing is real well what they're saying is that you know, the pattern you think you see is not a real pattern, right? When I mentioned signal detection theory, so I have a whole lecture on this in, in my course, uh, in which you know, I start off with um, uh, that Russian, um, that Soviet officer Petrov, uh, who detected uh, the signal of incoming missiles uh, from the United States into the Soviet Union. And he had to make a split decision he had like one minute to make a decision do i report this as real missiles and therefore launch a retaliatory strike against the united states or is it just a flock of birds or you know some other random signal in the in the noise that that's not not the, not not a true signal so he ultimately decided well there's only five blips on the screen seems unlikely that the United States was going to launch a first strike against the Soviet Union to dismantle in, uh, their entire nuclear arsenal. It wouldn't be with five little blips, five missiles. Got to be an anomaly of some kind. Turns out it wasn't birds, it was this other uh, cloud formation and, and something to do with the wow. satellites or something like that. Uh, so that, that's a signal detection. You know, the, the blurry blotch on an X ray. Or a CT scan is that brain cancer? Do I, you know, is it breast cancer? What is that? Or is it just random blotches? You know, so you know, oncologists have have a signal detection problem, and and the the ultimate problem is that you know we're not omniscient; we don't know one hundred percent what's actually real. So you, all decisions we make are made under uncertainty. And so we have to act like bayesian calculators well what are the odds that that blip represents a missile or a blob that turns out to be cancer or it's a real face in the cloud or whatever it is the god's talking to us or whatever you want to interpret that (laughs) as. so it's it's all signal detection you know who should i marry you know i have all these people i'm dating which is the right one you know that's a signal detection problem you don't want to make so again in my two by two cell you know here's you know the you know, the, the signals that turn out to be real missiles, and you you don't want to miss that. But on the other hand, you don't want false alarms where you go, okay, it's a blip on the screen. I'm going to say it's an incoming nuclear missile. turns out I was wrong, it's a, and it's a false positive. But that has a huge cause because if you launch a retaliatory strike, you have World War III, and that's the end of everything. So you don't want to make those kind of mistakes or just right. stop, think about stop and frisk. You know, in New York City, they implemented stop and frisk in the 90s because they wanted to capture more criminals okay well we don't know who the real criminals are it's a signal detection problem acting deciding under uncertainty so we're going to set the the bar pretty low and scoop up as many people as we can and hopefully we'll get mostly criminals but the problem with that is you're going to get way more false alarms you're going to you're going to nab innocent people or terrorists just think of screening for Mm -hmm. terrorists you're going to get far more innocent people based on loosening up of the criteria or in criminal justice, you know, you want a pretty high bar for conviction of a crime because um, the cost of convicting an innocent person is considered to be so great that, you know, we apply what's called Blackstone's criteria that, you know, uh, that the great jurist Blackstone said better 10 people, 10 guilty people go free than that one one innocent person be found guilty. And that's kind of the standard we've set there. So that's how to think about this issue from a signal detection problem.
1: So you're telling me that there's no Mother Mary in cheese sandwiches. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the grilled cheese sandwich. That's another slide in my slide. I got to actually hold that grilled cheese sandwich that sold for thirty five thousand dollars on eBay oh, uh, wow. to a Las Vegas casino. I'm not, I'm not sure they still have it there, but yeah, someone <laughs> actually took a bite out of the sandwich. It's crazy. That's awesome. And, and since and since I've written about that, um, people have sent me uh, like uh, a make make your own Virgin Mary and toast toaster you can toaster <laughs> your, your own bread to make your own. Virgin Mary you know, a grilled great. tea sandwich is pretty funny. Uh, yeah. So you know, yeah, and if, there's you know, lots of If I there.
2: may, I thought this was an interesting thing. Um, I figure it'd be awesome to phrase this question to someone who denies evolution uh, because sometimes you got to trick them into, into seeing what they're, what they're already going to assume is true. And so I'm going to show you an image here, but in this image, I figure, giving a lie type question up front to load them with this, prepping them for it. And they fall into the trap of thinking, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the lie of what I'm building up is true. And then after that, open up the reality to them. And that is down the street, I met a man named Bob. Now I'm making this up as we go, but I met a man named Bob. Bob's got a real skin condition and um, doctors have been doing some graphs on his body and they found out that maybe something genetically uh, was a little off on why the pigmentation has appeared this way. And so Bob's been trying to get it to where all of his skin is actually one color. Um, what do you guys think about Bob? I mean, like look at his hand and and the bottom line is this is an actual ape. This is not a human. Mm. This is an ape. Look closely at the fingernails. Look closely mm-hmm. at the knuckles. Look at your hand. You tell me that that isn't <laughs> something we, you know, we have in common. That's so human. Like, so if you tell him that this is a mm-hmm. human, Bob, who has a skin issue, um, something's up with his skin and it's discolored, you know. And then open up to. By the way, this is actually not a Homo sapien. This is an ape. What is mm-hmm. the fundamentalist going to say to that? You know, <laughs> I knew all along. Uh, or you liar, you lied to me. It's you know, <laughs> I think it's yeah, fascinating. Your, your book, The Believing Brain, is really all over this stuff. But I just figured I'd show you that image. Did you want to comment no, on that? But,
0: but- but, but by the way, this is um, my only book with full frontal nudity on the cover. And I was able to get oh, it nice. because most people are not offended by seeing a naked ape, uh, right. or a, a, a naked chimpanzee. In fact, uh, Desmond Morris famously called us the naked ape. Uh, we just don't have the hair. Right. But, you know, the similarities are quite striking. On the other hand, I mean, we share 98 point something of our genes with chimps and, and so on. And you can't help but miss the similarities, but on the other hand, you don't confuse them, short of the kind of cropped picture you just showed there, right? With other humans, I mean, no one like meets a chimp and goes, "Oh my God, I can't believe you're a chimp! I thought you were a human." It's you know, <laughs> you just you don't miss it, you don't confuse them at all, and uh, so they're they're different enough that you know, cognitively, they are definitely in a different conceptual category.
1: Hmm. So I've heard you once say that you used to be an evangelical going door to door preaching the word trying to get people saved and um how do you go like can you take us through that story a little bit how you got from from there to being the face of skepticism basically
0: <laughs> yes well that was a that was a long time ago in a galaxy far far away uh <laughs> when i was in my 20s yes early 20s in college high school and college basically yeah. You know, jumped on the evangelical train mainly because my friends were doing it. So it was more of a peer group influence uh, effect. Not My my parents were not religious. Oh, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually pretty common. You know, the, the number one predictor, somebody's religious beliefs are that of their parents. After that, it's that of their peer groups. And then third the kind of culture at large so um yeah in my case it was my peers and and uh, you know my buddies were doing it and all right so but i took it seriously you know i went to pepperdine uh, which is church of christ school i took courses in the old testament the new testament the life of jesus and the writings of c.s lewis we i took a course we read every single thing c.s lewis wrote it was quite quite a stimulating class but then when i went off to graduate school in experimental psych you know, just for fun i took some courses first of all i took a course in evolutionary biology and i thought oh my god this stuff is real i thought this was all bullshit, <laughs> and you know because that's what i thought creationists believed even though they didn't teach creationism at pepperdine uh, but i thought that's what I, I was supposed to be a creationist because i'd heard that and uh, so that was an eye opener oh my god evolution it actually happened so um and then but more importantly i took courses in um, anthropology, and I kind of went through my Joseph Campbell (laughs) mythology stage, you know, watching all those documentaries and reading his books and all that uh, later, and then I I thought, hmm, yeah, you know, everybody thinks that their religion is the one true religion, and, you know, they, they can't see the, detect the water they're swimming in. Literally, their culture is just everywhere, and that's all they know, but if you study it, you know, from a scientific perspective, you see, well, okay, that they're all—they all have the same commitment, similar commitments to their beliefs, but they can't all be right. So some—some some of them are wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. And then also the problem of evil, both—both both personally, because I had a girlfriend at the time that was in a bad car accident and she was paralyzed for life, still is. And uh, I thought, you know, that's just wrong. I mean, that just can't be. I mean, she's a good person. How could God let this happen? And it's not like, you know, human evil. Um, I'm talking about natural evil, just things that happen—tsunamis, earthquakes that kill people and whatnot, or accidents like that. I'm not talking about uh, homicide or genocide, to which Christians will say, "Well, that's free will. You know, humans are fallen; they're sinful. That's why they commit sin." I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about natural evil accidents like that that have it's just not right why why does god allow that to happen and the answers are pretty lame i, I find them wholly unsatisfying oh it builds moral character oh yeah thanks a lot god. i think <laughs> you know, i could have done that through sports rather than being paralyzed for life right. you know or you know women that get raped or victims of genocide and torture you know like surely there's better ways to build character than that you know it's a bit of a reach you know so for me i just end up giving up my religious beliefs and it was wasn't a big deal because so here's another uh you know angle on this I was young I didn't have a social circle that was deeply religious who would be disappointed in me my family wasn't religious so they didn't care if I gave it up so there was nothing to lose and you know who I feel sorry for are the people that are older say middle age their spouse their children all their friends and family co-workers they all go to church maybe even the same church and so for them to leave, there's a high cost. And, you know, it's, that's troublesome, you know, because then you're less likely to do it. It's harder to, to uh, kind of get build up the intellectual courage to do it. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to them.
2: If if I may here, this is an interesting point you brought up. In your deconversion process, you figured out science. You, you started learning a thing or two about science, the natural world. But also you talked about mythology and Joseph Campbell's name got brought up. Me and Neil both yeah. went from fundamentalist christians to well we can't let go of the god thing so we we kind of made the woo woo abstract esoteric approach where we recognized mythology that there were stories we didn't buy them as literally true anymore but they applied some spiritual significance to us somehow right so we were still trying to keep one in one foot in the door and say that's the position god's bigger right so we went from that to kind of a mythology, Joseph Campbell, um, for him, it was Gnosticism or a, a, a form of Gnostic. And then we both started to go, hold on. I think natural explanations actually might make sense for why belief at all. Why do we have gods? Why do we imagine these things? Agenicity, patternicity, um, assuming these things in the natural world. So, we've, we've come there. We're with you. We're with you on this. Now the question then becomes a little more complex because I've seen you interview, uh, Bernardo Castro and Bernardo Mm -hmm. Castro is like a brilliant, brilliant mind, but he's also a philosophical uh, form of idealist. And Mm -hmm. I can't keep up with Mm -hmm. half the things this guy says. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's super complex, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of a, a strange philosophy where nothing is really there except our perception of these these our eyes of what we're imagining is there. And it's very complicated. His philosophy is very complicated. He's also going to have a discussion with Graham Oppie. I don't know if you've ever heard of that philosopher. He's an atheist. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. long story short, I'll shut up after this. I just want to make the point to get your thoughts. When someone finally looks through all the literature and goes, all right, I'm not buying it. I don't read the Quran. I believe it's true. I don't read the Bible. I believe it's true. These are myths. These are ancient cultural Way of trying to understand the world around us, why we die, why we live, what's our purpose, etc. And we've kind of cut through all that, but you still have guys like Bernardo Castro who are saying, well, we're not Christians. I don't believe in this particular philosophy as if these stories are literally true. However, there has to be a mind above that. What is your personal mm-hmm. uh, response to that kind of thing? Like we've cut through all the woo-woo but we still think theism in some shape or form makes mm-hmm. better sense than that. Basically
1: the, the deist argument
2: in a sense, which by yeah. the way,
1: yeah. which by the real quick, just want to jump in real quick. You know, I noticed that fundamentalists will use deist arguments. Like we, well, you don't know what happened before the big bang. So therefore Bible's true. And they jump, they, they take that huge leap from they'll, they'll they'll hide behind deist arguments that you can't necessarily disprove more than you can prove and then jump from that to, therefore, Bible's true.
2: Right.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of steps in between there um, to get from. <laughs> I know. The big, the big bang, fine-tuning is to Jesus died for your sins. They they, <laughs> they, have many, they have to make many moves to get there. <laughs> right, uh, And there's enough moves there that, to me, it, it just it tells that it's culturally determined because the other team can make the same moves and end up in, judaism or islam or buddhism or whatever okay the higher mind idea could be true i mean it's possible if you push back far enough you know why should the laws of nature be as they are uh, mm-hmm. well one answer is the multiverse there's multiple universes and they have different laws of nature and the ones that have laws of nature that give rise to atoms and molecules and People that ask questions about why we're here, uh, you know, <laughs> end up with with what we have and the others don't. And so we're you know, it's like somebody had to win the lottery. Whoever wins the lottery feels like they're special. That's us. Right. So this argument, the multiverse argument is uh, is a good one. It's reasonable. I'm told by mathematicians, cosmologists that it's not a, a ad hoc hand waving uh, move to deal with theism at all. It's a derivative of the theory and the mathematics which you know i don't do so i don't know for sure but uh but what's the alternatives okay maybe there is a mind but now it gets a little confusing because you you have a, a range of people like 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 the philosopher you just mentioned and others who are like pantheists or more like um no what's the term what's the term where every everything is oh, oh, oh a pan um what's the, what's the term Oh, yeah, so,
2: panentheism or something it's like a yeah pan- panentheism
0: uh, in any case, where you know er, er, everything is mind. I you know, like my friend Deepak Chopra, you know, he he actually makes another move. He's a mind modist. He's not a dualist. He's actually a, a monist in which mind is everything, not matter. I'm a material monist. He's a mind monist. So. And, and they and they mm-hmm. use certain language like Tillich, the the, the theologian that. Until they define God as the, you know, the ground of all being. There is nothing underneath that, and so Deepak kind of uses that language. Consciousness is the ground of all being. There's nothing underneath that. You can't drill down, like you drill down into atoms, and then into, you know, the nucleus, and then into the, the, the quarks, and at, at some point you just end up with these. Um, these energy fields and and that's the ground of all being. Well, no, no. These guys say, no, consciousness is 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 below that. (laughs) And then that's the ground of all being. And there's nothing underneath that. And it's consciousness that gives rise to those fields of energy, which give rise to quarks, which give rise to atoms, molecules and us. So they they kind of reverse the directionality. Hmm. So the problem is, how do you test that at some point? It's just kind of an interesting metaphysical story that people tell. Is there some way to test it? And that that's much harder. And so you end up with these kind of um, epistemological walls that we hit. So what what is the ultimate explanation? Well, first of all, do we need one? I mean, uh, to what extent does it matter in your life? OK, if it matters, then OK, go ahead and think about it. Most people, they don't care. Right. Uh, you know, so it's sort of a kind of pragmatic truth and, and, it, and it doesn't make any difference to their lives. You know, do we have free will or not? Well, on, on one level, we act as if we do or else why would you bother to even get out of bed? What's the point of this whole debate of free will and determinism? Well, for some people, you know, it matters. But for most people, they just it's a useful fiction. I feel free uh, like I'm a volitional agent. That's how everybody acts. So I'm just going to pretend that it's real, even if the determinists are right. So that's again one of these kind of pragmatic truths. It's a useful fiction for getting around. Uh, I mean, the criminal ju- the entire criminal justice system is based on uh, assuming people have volition and free will, and therefore they're more morally culpable. And we do have exceptions for that. You know, somebody who has brain damage, or um, they're severely retarded, they didn't know what they were doing, or they're psychopaths, they don't know the difference between right and wrong. They have brain damage or they have some you know they're, they're chemically addicted to drugs or whatever or they're enraged they caught their partner in in palatio or whatever uh and, and uh and, and so they they have a, a rage the rage circuit you know explodes and they and they kill the person you know we have exceptions for those in the law along with accidents and so on first degree murder second degree murder third degree murder these with different circumstances but you know but you know so some philosopher could say no 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 that's all bullshit it's all determined it's, it's it is it 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 began with the big bang and it was all determined that you would have me on your show today that was determined 14 billion years ago okay <laughs> you know on, on the one hand you know come on who cares uh, on the other hand you know the determinists are going to you know push that that argument and at some point if you can't get to an ultimate answer you just say look i feel free It's a useful fiction you know you you act the same way so we're going to just go with that so i think that's kind of what these big mind type arguments you know what's behind all of it the laws why is there something rather than nothing you know it's just such a weird conceptual way to phrase it why why not reverse it why not say nothing would be weird and something is the default position there's just always been something even if it's not our universe it could be like virtual particles or quantum fields or something were already in existence. It always have been.
1: Right. And then they give
0: birth to universes like ours. And, you know, so there might be big bangs popping in and out of universes in and out of existence all the time. We're just only aware of this one. At, at some point, we're just doing science fiction. We're just talking and, and kind of right. speculating metaphysics if we don't do the cosmological math behind it. And uh, so I, I find these conversations really interesting, but ultimately kind of fruitless. Cause you know, what are you gonna do with it? Uh, unless, you know, if you're debating a theist who says, no, no, I think God, th- th- there is mind and it's God. Okay, then, then we're back to where we started this part of the conversation, which one? You know, it's, oh, well, it was the, you know, Yahweh and his son, Jesus and blah, blah, blah. And then you end up with, you know, Christianity or something. And, you know, to me, that's a bit of a stretch.
1: And they always, they will always say, you always say, okay, how do you, if you're, if you're an alien from outer space and you came down, how are you going to show them which one is the true one that they need to follow? And they're always mm-hmm. have an answer like, well, if they read my book, then they'll have the answer. Or if they, <laughs> if they come to my church, mm-hmm. they'll figure it out. It's like, don't you not see the irony there? You're asking why yours stands out from the other ones. And your answer is because I'm here, basically. So you get that a lot. And and what you're (laughs) talking about reminds me of Carl Jung's uh, collective unconsciousness. And you sort Mm. of hear that tossed around and the new age movements now. But what I think is is kind of, I don't know if you call it problematic or just whatever, it's apparent, is people trying to use quantum science for their for their arguments for theism mm-hmm. and they totally and i was guilty of this years ago when i was coming out of christianity and i sort of went into gnosticism and i was oh the collective unconsciousness is all. i started doing this where i would say oh look <laughs> have you ever heard of quantum entanglement well that means that there could be a god entangled with you right now is watching everything so i uh, you know you see the people they misrepresent science they don't know what they're talking about and I'm, I'm saying because i was one of these people and they'll use those that as arguments for whatever or spiritual worldview they want to do.
0: And it's always quantum physics because it is spooky oh, and weird. Yeah. And then you find anything else that's spooky and weird, you go, well, it's got to be related to that. Yeah. I just recorded an episode <laughs> of my podcast with Free Capra. I loved his book back in the 70s and 80s, The Tao of Physics and The Turning Point and the Web of Life. And yep. you know, it's, it, it he opens every everything he ever writes with, you know, the double slit experiment and the entanglement of particles and and, and therefore, and then he ends up at some macro uh, phenomenon, right? And you know, like free will, or, or um, you know that 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 Buddhists have figured out the true nature of, of reality because they were doing the same thing quantum physicists are doing. They just use different language, that kind of thing. Well, okay, here back to signal detection problem. Yeah, maybe maybe the ancients had figured this out, but maybe there's just so many ways to talk about reality, and the fact that you can go through the texts of you know ancient philosophers and find some similarities to the language that quantum physicists use and go i think they must be they must be related maybe but probably not right there's just so many ways to 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 think about and talk about the the world you're going to find similarities and again it's all super interesting because it hits at these deep questions but what we want to know because we're um limited in our knowledge is it actually true Okay, so let's think about this way, there's, you know, there's religious truths, and then there's empirical truths. And Mm -hmm. and so if we take something like climate change, you know, is, the world, is, is is global warming real? Is it primarily human-caused? Okay, in principle, we can answer this question for sure. Not 100%, but we can reach a consensus, which we largely have, using a convergence of evidence from different fields of study and do a kind of Bayesian analysis of what are the probabilities that, the, you know, this signal, this pattern we think we found is false and it looks like it's not. Therefore, we can assume that there's a truth, small t, about that conclusion and so on. So there's tools of rationality and in, in science to to find some conclusions that we think are very likely to be true. the Big bang happened. uh, Evolution happened, you know, so forth. And, uh, but religious truths are not in that category. So you you mentioned, you know, the anthropologist from Mars comes down and says, okay, which is the right religion? And each of them said, well, we're the right one. And at some point the anthropologist is going to, well, let me see your evidence. (laughs) Uh, Let's see who's got the best evidence. Well, of course they all think they have good evidence, but they don't. And, uh, and there's no experiment we're going to run you know it's like einstein's famous uh, general theory of relativity that eddington then tested with the eclipse experiment now that's a little more complicated story but in the end you know he was very he was uh verified his sorry he was, his theory was corroborated empirically and and that's when he became famous so having a cool theory like that is one thing but you know be, you know having it confirmed by your colleagues through some tests that sets it apart from other truths. So the fact that you know Christians believe that Jesus died and three days later came back from the dead, and they call it a miracle, right? The ultimate miracle. So you know, now at this point, I usually go through my Bayesian calculations and and start with Hume and and uh, and what's more likely, you know, that the odds are. A hundred billion to one, because a hundred billion people lived and died before the eight billion alive now, and not one of them has ever come back from the dead. So we can put a number on it. It's a hundred billion to one. Now, of course, Christians say, "No, no, no. One did. <laughs> Name is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one." Right. Okay, so it's a hundred billion to one odds that this actually happened. So, what's more likely? You know that that you know the laws of nature were suspended, or that some small group of people got it wrong. You know they. They misperceived, you know, they heard the story about the women went to the tomb and it was empty. And then afterwards, there were some apparitions and they, you know, so-and-so saw Jesus. The 500 people, you know, so that's another 500 people saw Jesus, you know, after he, he was dead. <laughs> no, no. It, there's one account that says 500 people, not five. 40 years later. Account. Very different.
1: That one, and that one accounts 40 <laughs> years later. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's right. You, that's come, exactly up, you right. come up. Yeah. So. Sorry. No, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just yeah. wanted to talk
0: to yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, what's more likely? Okay. It's, it's much more likely that some guy got it wrong than that the laws of nature were suspended or a miracle happened. This is a basic Humean type argument, you know, upgraded, say, by Carl Sagan's principle of E.C.R.E. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You know, coming back from the dead would be quite extraordinary. You know, and how good is the evidence for it? It's not extraordinary. It's pretty crummy, actually. It's 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 very fraught with human and cultural elements to it. Probably probably not. But that's not the, that's that's one argument. A second argument I make is if your arguments are so good, if the evidence is so obvious, because I've debated these people, they go, it's clear, it's clear you know, almost hundred percent. You know, Jesus died, they died and came back from the dead. Why don't Jews believe it? Why don't Muslims believe it? Just talking I mean, you Muslim. can't say, well, they just don't know the arguments. If they understood the arguments, they they'd be Christians. No, you <laughs> you can't possibly mean that. I mean, these rabbis, this is what they do for a living. I mean, they're professional philosophers, scholars, theologians. They know the arguments. They just don't think they're very good. Right? So, and and the, the Jewish example is quite striking because they believe the same God, right? Yahweh. They, they believe the some same Messiah. Book. At least the Old Testament. So if your arguments for Jesus' resurrection were so good, then these Jewish rabbis who are quite capable of understanding your arguments, they should go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, you're right. And then they become so, Christian.
1: And not even, to add to what you just said, I was just talking about this with somebody else. Um, they're, first of all, the Jews invented the Messiah concept. They're the ones that were waiting for this Messiah. Second of all, according to the narrative in the New Testament, it says that they saw literal zombies come out of the graves when Jesus died. It says in the book of Matthew that the sky turned black and gr- bodies came out of the graves and were walking the streets of Jerusalem. So you're telling me that the Jews that living in it, the Pharisees and Sadducees saw this while they're waiting for a Messiah and then said, yeah, nah, I'm going yeah. <laughs> to cover this up now. It doesn't make sense. That's like saying that's like saying you have a choice to go here. Open this box right here and you're going to get eternal life. but Open that box over there. You're going to hell you're going to pick the one that what there's no way somebody's picking the one mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense and um mm-hmm. another thing i wanted to touch on was um is, so the goalposts right it keeps getting moved we, we learn more and more stuff as we learn more about science so if mm-hmm. and it makes me wonder if the people who wrote the bible knew what we knew today would they write the same stuff i'd say no because first of all they didn't know that there was a million galaxies out there with different planets and stars they thought the center of the universe was the earth so they're going to write about this the, the, i mean th- this is stuff that like as we go along the goalpost gets changed more and more and uh we go, like that would have changed everything just that alone would have changed the entire game knowing that we're not in the center mm-hmm. of everything we're actually on the outer mm-hmm. ring of the, of the milky way in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. so it's like so the more we learn, you would think that it would it would be like easier to fall off of these beliefs. But the goalposts just keep getting shifted more and more. And they just said, well, you know, just that's what it is now. We're just going to fill in the bl-. they just keep filling in the blanks. So it's not about what we know. It's about what we don't know. And that's what they attack. What happened before the Big Bang? Oh, you don't know? Well, therefore, God. And that's what mm-hmm. it is. That's the argument. Yeah. That's the God of the
0: gaps argument that comes up a lot. So I I rewrote Genesis in the coda to my book, Why Darwin Matters, (laughs) uh, in the language of modern science. In the beginning, specifically on October 23rd, 4004 B.C. at noon, out of the quantum foam fluctuation, God created the Big (laughs) Bang, followed by cosmological inflation and an expanding universe. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. So he created quarks, and therefrom he created hydrogen atoms, and thence he commanded the hydrogen atoms to fuse and become helium atoms and in the process to release energy in the form of light. And the light maker he called the sun and the process he called fusion. And he saw the light was good because now he could see what he was doing. So he created <laughs> Earth in the evening and the morning were the first day. <laughs> Shall I continue? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and God said, Let there be lots of fusion light makers in the sky. Some of these fusion light makers he grouped into collections he called galaxies. And these appear to be millions and even billions of light years from Earth, which would mean that they were created before the first creation in BC. <laughs> this was confusing. So God created tired light. That's actually a creationist argument, tired light. And the creation story was preserved. And he created many wondrous splendors, such as red giants, white dwarfs, quasars, pulsars, supernovas, wormholes, and even black holes out of which nothing can escape. But since God cannot be constrained by nothing, he created hawking radiation through which information can escape from black holes. This made God even more tired than tired light in the evening and the morning or the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together unto one place and let the continents drift apart by plate tectonics. He decreed decreed that seafloor spreading would create zones of emergence. And he caused (laughs) subduction zones to build mountains and cause earthquakes. In weak points in the crust, God created volcanic islands, where the next day He would place organisms that were similar to but different from the relatives on the continents, so that still later creatures called humans could mistake them for evolved descendants created by adaptive radiation. Oh my God! Earth. So good. This is the evening, in the morning, we're the third day. Anyway, this goes on for another. Oh wow!
2: You got to get the book, seriously. <laughs> yeah. This is beautiful. So if you want to read the rest of that.
0: But of course, you know that's not what the language is because they wrote in the language of their own time and you know people then later read into what it is that they think that they're seeing now now let's switch for a second and think about uh because i've had conversations with theists like that uh in which they go no 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 Shermer, i I don't mean any of this literally i mean mythically you know more more like a joseph campbell like or or maybe a a, um, a jordan peterson you know like I don't mean right. Jesus literally came back, died and came back from the dead. Di- I mean, metaphorically, mythically, you know, you, we should all bear our own cross. We should bear our burdens. We should forgive people. We should be born again in our lives. Start over every day as a new day. Start over, born again. And, and you know, and, and so on, you know, to, to deal with the suffering of life, something like that. It's like, oh, OK. So it's a mythological truth. So there maybe maybe what they mean is something like the free will useful fiction not literally true. The determinists are right. We live in a determined universe. So maybe the resurrection is something like a, a useful fiction for the, um, theists or Christians that, you know, this is what I believe because, you know, I don't know, it makes me feel good. It brings order to my life. And, and you do hear that. And so there then it's hard to know what to do with that other than they go, okay, you know, that's kind of a pragmatic truth, whatever you want to do with that. And, you know, you don't want to take away something from somebody that, you know, helps them get through the night. I mean, it's a, you know, life is hard. So, uh, you know, but it's it's when the empirical claim is made that we then as scientists and rationalists can say, hang on, hang on. hang on. <laughs> If you mean literally empirically, then we have a problem on our hands because uh, we right. have the evidence. But if you just mean this mythically, I mean, in, in a way, it'd be like saying what, you know, where did it was Harry Potter real? Uh, it's like what are you talking about it's a novel you know or the brothers karamazov or you know, just pick any novel or the lord of the rings you know the trilogy how is it that the first volume it, it prophesizes what appears in the third volume it's like it's a book you know, it's like
2: <laughs> exactly wow
0: you <laughs> know uh, but, but 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 it would not be appropriate to say it's all bullshit because somebody made it up therefore there's no value in it of course there's value in in novels mm-hmm. uh, there's other kinds of truths in novels truths about human conflict and human nature and political systems and society and so on those are different kinds of truths and maybe that's what the bible really is is just a work of fiction with literary truths or mythical truths
1: yeah and i think the i think one of the big things that people don't mention when we come to this conversation is that I think the biggest one of all is that people are scared of death. So they need some... This is something that people t- tell themselves in order... And, and like, I would say probably for some people it works. People who actually are convinced they're going to heaven on their deathbed probably are not going to have a hard time. So, and that's like a... I don't know if it's like a platonic, the you know, the cave allegory, like the the noble lie, basically. Plato talked about the noble lie. Maybe that was the the entire uh, purpose for this whole thing to begin with. Who knows?
2: The problem is, is Mm -hmm. if that were the case, that has been lost to its own followers. So technically the noble lie has become the sole truth and everyone is duped by the noble lie. They don't recognize it as a noble lie. They recognize it as objective truth. And now that we're living in an age where objective truth is going to help us survive as a species, we need to be able to distinguish between woo-woo and objective truth. And this gets down to the problems. So I have fun with you, Neil, and of course, having people like him come on and hang out with us. But Dr. Shermer, I don't know if you knew this. I just want to throw this your way to get your thoughts. There's a book being, well, it was already published now, and it's just not in America yet, by a woman named Francesca Mm -hmm. and She's a Hebrew Old Testament uh, professor, and it's called God and Anatomy. Now, she's Hebrew Old Testament Mm -hmm. scholar, right? Or She's Hebrew Bible.
1: To
2: We're talking about a boss when it comes to knowing this stuff. Yeah. The entire book <laughs> is about how Yahweh, the Hebrew God, has a body. And the whole point is mm. a physical body. So mm. she proves in the Bible this isn't an anthropomorphic allegorical language of the spiritual. Remember the goalpost thing you kept mentioning, Neil? They make God outside time and space. However, She shows in the Hebrew Bible that is not the case. God lives within a locale in the heavens, not outside (laughs) of heavens, okay? Um, Mm -hmm. And that goalpost keeps moving. So if you can show from their own literature, your God has hands, feet, a penis, had a wife named Asherah. I mean, like when you can prove these things from the history, the surrounding cultural context, that should maybe wake some people up. Hopefully. <laughs> and then they can start That's to go, you know. I personally, I got to say this and I'll shut up. I'd love to get your thoughts on this, guys. I'm more in love with the story of our own history of how we came to be where we are now than I am, mm-hmm. even though I love the stories of the Bible. I love the stories of these literature. And I do. Uh, they teach us things in weird ways that, you know, like you talk about, a certain type of uh, altruistic truths can be taught through these things. But Knowing the facts is stranger than the fiction. And it's like, whoa, this reality we live in and the fact that we came to be what we are and we're thinking about the things of existence. Just mm-hmm. that to me is mind boggling.
0: Hmm. Well, I don't know what to make of that. Uh, it reminds me of one of those Star Trek movies where uh, the, 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 the deity wants to take over the Starship Enterprise. And at some point, Captain <laughs> Kirk says, why does God need a starship? <laughs> Shouldn't you be able to just kind of bounce around the universe? <laughs> what do you need my ship for? <laughs> Turns out he wasn't a God. So, you know, the moment right. you put a, you know, God into a physical being, there, then there's limitations. Does the physical being um, age, you know, and, and, and become decrepit? Does it forget, you know, all the, the limitations of, of human bodies. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure no the, theologian is going to accept that premise. Um theologians though. It, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're talking yeah, well, about yeah, so the, critical. But, the
0: fact, but the fact that somebody could even write a book like that and say it's based in the old Testament or whatever she says, yeah. uh, shows you how, how, how broad a broader reading can be done based on, on this book. Right.
2: Um, well, I mean, you, okay. you and I have well, all sweet. heard, we don't have to get into theology, but we've all heard God does not change his mind or God is the same yesterday, today and forever. Um, God knows everything. Well, when you read passages where it's clear that God does not know all they do is once again the goalpost they move it. So where it's like um Adam, where are you in the garden? You know, or or like uh, man, I I repent that I made man, I, I I shouldn't have destroyed them all like or or he's so angry that he did destroy them because he's like man, uh, he's angry after the flood, uh, uh, destroying all of mankind almost almost like these emotions that we're reading she's saying Mm -hmm. don't slide past that don't let the theologians trick you this is exactly what other ancient near eastern gods look like and it's exactly Mm -hmm. what they did so when you see that and you can use that against the apologists who are telling your grandma she's going to hell she doesn't send 10 percent of her tithes in this is stuff i combat and i love doing that with neil we we've been We've been combating fundamentalism for a long time. People want to be theists. People want to believe in things. I get it. At the end of the day, we're all going to believe in some things that maybe we don't have the empirical data to, to support at the end of the day. However, some things are just ridiculous and harmful and traumatic like <laughs> hell.
0: hmm <laughs> hmm hmm Yeah. Right. Well, uh, when I was researching and writing Heavens on Earth, I, I encountered this issue of – uh, of di- differences between religions on what happens in the afterlife. Where do you go? What's it like? And are you there physically or are you there spiritually? What does that mean? You know, my wh- where would my pattern of information that represents my soul or my connectome, that's my, all oh, my memories or whatever. Where is that? You know, some quantum field somewhere. Is it, is it in the cloud, the equivalent of whatever the cloud would be in heaven? <laughs> and how old am I, you know, when I'm there? Uh, you know, and some, you know, some theologians go, Oh, well, you, you'll be 30. You'll be resurrected and in, in, in heaven in a physical body. Well, how old is the physical body? 30, because that's the age Jesus was when he was <laughs> crucified. 30, well, yeah, 30 was, I was strong and young and had my better memory and a better body then than I do now. But I also have 37 more years of memory that I've accumulated and experiences since I was 30 because I'm 67 now. So where do those memories go? Uh, are they there in the same brain? How does that even work? And then of course, others go, no, 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 forget this physical body nonsense. It's, you know, you're, it's just your soul. Well, what is that? Again, is that just my connectome The you know, the complete uh, record of my memory? But there is no such record because no, it's not recorded in, in there in the head. You know, it's a, it's a continually edited process. You know, it's not like there's a memory of my 25th birthday or say my 21st birthday. Uh, I have pictures <laughs> of that with me at my parents' house and my family was there. I, it, but but it's that picture that I'm remembering now
1: mm-hmm.
0: more than the experiences themselves. So mm. w- what's the true memory? There is no true memory. It's, you know, it's a constantly edited process. And so what, what gets resurrected there? You know which are the real memories or the memories of the memories and the edits of the memories of the memories wow. and so on. And, uh the, you know and by the way it's not just religion that has this problem The sci- scientists who want to upload our minds into the cloud people like ray kurzweil think we're going to live forever uh through this mind uploading no they have the same problem you know what you know whenever you choose to scan your connectome Uh, and this can't be done by the way, but let's just say hypothetically, we get there and you'd have big enough computers to store the file and you, and then you then upload it to the cloud. Uh, -hmm. well, what's there, you know, the moment you're done scanning my brain, that's it. But I continue, you know, I, I'm having more experiences the rest of today. That's going to alter my, my life experience a little and the next day even more and so on. And as I continue on, so you've just made a copy of me at that particular moment that day. That hour, that's my who I am wow. at that moment. But there is no permanent self. The self is this kind of continuous process from step to step, day to day, moment to moment. And and so even, even the scientific attempt to achieve immortality is flawed for the same reason that the religions are.
1: Hmm. Well, did Joe Rogan ever get you to do DMT? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no. <laughs> My wife forbids this. So I'm not going down the ghost. <laughs> I don't, I don't blame you. I'm tempted, um, but uh, <laughs> this Jared, is, go ahead. If, I was
2: going to say, this is an interesting question. I'd like to ask you because you're a skeptic. Now you're not just any skeptic. You're literally the skeptic magazine skeptic. Okay. You're the guy, that skeptic. <laughs> you're that skeptic. And in fact, you have <laughs> created a movement. In fact, I started calling myself a skeptic after I read uh, the believing brain. Um, and, and I'm fine with calling myself an atheist, even if people pigeonhole me, because I know that that definition also has a little flexive, flexible meaning, uh, unless you're talking metaphysical atheism, but I'm not even going there. I'm not making a Gnostic atheistic approach like I know. But at the end of the day, the question, I've never really heard anyone ask you this. All right, maybe they have, but I haven't heard you answer this ever. Where do you find meaning? Because I know I could give the answer. I know Neil could give the answer. We could give our own personal explanations of how we find meaning. But a lot of theists just can't imagine that if you don't Mm. have that mind above you, that deity above Mm -hmm. you, there's something that promises you afterlife or eternal life or something. How do you find meaning? And for you, Dr. Shermer, where do you find meaning in this life?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't see how the promise of An afterlife gives this life meaning, if anything, and some philosophers argue this, that we're going to die is what gives life meaning that like, okay, Mm. this is it. I mean, I could go, you know, I'm going to go on a bike ride this afternoon. I could get, you know, squashed by a a truck and that's the end. So I better enjoy this moment with you guys right now. This is it. Yeah. (laughs) Let's hope this doesn't happen. But (laughs) but that's the idea that, that there's a terminus to the sequence makes every moment in the sequence all the more pregnant with meaning by the fact that it's going to end now okay so that's one counter to it but you know the whole uh, afterlife problem is fraught with other logical issues not the least of which is but but doesn't that if anything degrade the value of the moment if all this stuff we're doing now is just a precursor to the big game in the next life you know this 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 you know kind of uh, theater of the absurd we're living through is just a preliminary before uh, the the big show, and so on. Then, then, why bother caring now, other than just reward and punishment? In some cosmic mm. courthouse afterwards. Um, no, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think any of that makes much sense to me. In any case, whether there's an afterlife or not, you should assume that that there isn't, just in case. And and either way, don't miss out on this life, because this is the life you have for sure. Now this is it you 100% you know you're alive uh, but you don't know with hundred percent that there's going to be another life after. so you better you better enjoy that. okay so where do I find meaning? Well the way everybody else does through meaningful work and, and family and, and loving relationships and friends and you know a career that you know it, that's driven towards something bigger than myself, I find meaning in, uh, my, uh, hobbies like cycling, working out every day, hikes with my dog in nature. You know, there's a lot of research on this and you know, going out into nature seems to make people feel good. I like that Absolutely. hikes in the woods and so on barefoot on the beach, those kinds of things that were, that the spiritual gurus kind of tell us are good. They are good. Yeah. There's research that shows that they're good. You know, I like to go into cathedrals. I also like to go into, uh, astronomical observatories and I get the same experience. There's something about that that takes us takes you out of yourself so this is what the research says something that takes you out of yourself and into something bigger than you whatever that is science of course gives us that but anything you know volunteering for a nonprofit or you know manning the soup kitchens or you know helping somebody uh, that needs help and it's not about you. You know, it's not like giving the donation to the university and put your name on a building. That That's right. not going to do it. It has to be something that, <laughs> that that you value doing. And it has, you know, some moral implications and so on. Those are the sorts of things that, that, uh, that people, you know, getting married, having kids, building a family, having friends, all that. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, people say that's what makes life worth living. And that's different than happiness. So Good doing point. things that make you happy at the moment is short term. And of course, that's all good. It's fun to you know go out to dinner with friends and 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 have a good time. And, but that then it's over. And then you know what happens next? Okay, maybe something bad happens, and then you're not happy. But uh, meaningful activities are long term. That that is, they have a longer time horizon, both forward and back. So you know, nostalgia of looking back on my life, thinking, well, this is what I've done, and then looking forward, given that I've done this, I want to do that. And, you know, and, and much of what I do is not fun. It doesn't make me happy moment to moment, but it makes me feel more purposeful and meaningful. Like my life has more meaning that I'm doing this uncomfortable thing, whatever that is. And working out is, you know, hard. I try, I, when I work out, I try to do it hard and it's not fun, but I feel better afterwards. Or, you know, care uh, example I give caretaking for my, my parents, you know, driving, schlepping my dad around to doctors and medical centers and, all this stuff it wasn't fun at all it was exhausting it was depressing you know it was just sad and so on but i feel like i'm a better person for it and of course yeah he, you know i love my dad and so he appreciated that and i would want somebody to do that for me and on and on you know that so um you know much of what we do that psychologists study this just tell us we don't do it because it makes us happy we do it because it makes us fulfilled as purposeful meaningful people
1: yeah and I'm, I'm thinking about what you're saying about like, like for example, on a clear night, a lot when I look up at the stars and I see everything, I get this like feeling like, how lucky am I just to be alive? Mm-hmm. And do, you, whatever the process of the Big Bang, whatever happened, that the result is that me being here, uh, being, you know, conscious of being able to d- do things and, and and experience life. And then I hear people like Michael Kru- or. Um, um, Dr. Krauss talk about um, how the beginning of the universe was the size of an atom, and then it mm-hmm. expanded to what it is now. That right there is like way more powerful than mm-hmm. any religion can, mm-hmm. can. Just thinking about that. So, mm-hmm. so and, and, and so I want to switch it up a little bit and go into the topic of morality. You hear all the time mm-hmm. your uh, Christians and Muslims say, "Well, you know, mor- where does morality come from?" then? it has to come from God. It has to. They always, it's like their big argument and it's like, okay, well, let's take a look at this for a second. Let's look at law codes. So you got the, or, Nammu law code, and you got the, the Hammurabi's law code. And then you got the Bible's law code. And then you see how it's progressively getting, it goes from trial by death, where people get cast into the water. <laughs> if they do something wrong, getting their hands cut off for stealing. And then all of a sudden you get to the New Testament and it's like, well, love your neighbor, this, that, and third. And then you see how our morality progresses over time, which makes someone like me say, look, our morality comes from experience. We experience things over time as, as a collective society and decide, okay, that's not good. We shouldn't just sack other cities because when it happened to us, that sucked. We didn't like that, so we shouldn't do it to other people. So that's what that's why I think morality comes from life experience, not some outside realm. Well, I want to hear what you think about that.
0: Yeah. Well, I would say it comes from a, not an outside of Earth realm, but an outside of you and I personally or our culture from evolution. That is evolution gives us a human nature that includes a moral sense of right and wrong that has to do with social relationships. We're not isolated creatures living in caves by ourselves. We have to interact with other rational beings whose own self-interest is primary for them. So I, w- I can't appeal to you to treat me nice just because I'm me and you're not. I have to appeal to you to say, well, you should treat me nice because I'm gonna treat you nice. So, you know, here well, why should I do that? Because I would want you to treat me nice. So therefore I should treat you nice. You flip it and that's the golden rule. Most religions and cultures have discovered this independently because we are, that's who we are by nature. So I call it discovery. It's not an invention, not some cultural quirkiness to human culture. It's not relative. You know, these are true moral values that are in our nature. And so the moment I uh, recognize that you too are a moral agent, And if I want you to take me seriously, I need to uh, practice the principle of interchangeable perspectives. I need to put myself in your shoes and think, well, how would I feel if I did this to him? Now, that's not perfect because oftentimes people have different preferences. So maybe I wouldn't mind you doing X to me, but you you would. So, of course, we have to adjust for that. And I call that the ask first principle. If you're not sure, ask first before you do it. Okay. It's, it's pretty simple. And <laughs> in any case, there's there, so there's kind of a game theory logic behind it that I developed in the moral arc. I have a long chapter on, you know, how this is all in our nature and, and, and what you can derive from that, which is a lot, actually. And the progress we've been making over the centuries is, is ba- basically to expand the moral sphere to include more people. As honorary family members, friends, and members of our tribe, our tribe is beginning larger. In essence, I would be nice to my fellow family members because they're genetic relations. I'd be nice to my fellow group members because I know them and we're going to interact together for life. And therefore, it pays me to be nice to them. I want them to be nice to me, but I can't pretend, I can't fake being a nice person. Because if I'm just a psychopath and I'm just manipulating people to get my way, but I don't actually believe it, I don't really have true friends, I don't really love people, I'm I'm just faking, they'll know that because in time the tells are are, are clear, you know, and this is why psychopaths and so on, they can get away with it for a while, you know, the cheating spouse, the lying, the lying spouse or whatever, they can get away with it for a while, but eventually get caught. And so we have cheating detection modules or networks in our brain that are, you know, we're We're sensitive to that as a problem, so we look for it. So true morality is that I actually want to be nice to you. I actually feel good about it. Like, this is the right thing to do. I feel right about it. You appreciate it, and you reward me for that. And that's true morality, that's as good as it gets. You know, you don't need an outside source to say, good job, Michael, you get a little present, you get an M&M <laughs> in, in heaven. Uh, to me, that's a shallow way of thinking about it. So, yeah. and from there you can build entire uh, moral systems, which of course are complex. I mean, there's no right answer to the abortion issue or immigration issue or these more complex social political issues because uh, of conflicting interests that people have and conflicting moral values in the details like conflicting rights—the rights of the mother to choose to do what she wants with her body and her baby, and the rights of the fetus to live. You know? there, so there's no right answer to that. It's like what well, it depends on what you know the culture has decided, and you know this is in the news now. Uh, or you know the trans rights—you know that don't trans have a right to, to their own uh, you know bodies and choices and and their own sports divisions? And and if they identify as a man identifies as a woman, shouldn't she be able to compete in women's divisions? Well, yes, except unless it's conflicting with women's rights to compete against somebody who is physically in their same category. And if it's a trans man who's not transitioned for very long and the body is still quite different, then that's not fair. So you get conflicting rights in bathrooms or prison, women's prisons. There's all these guys apparently that want to uh, transition to become women so they can go into women's prison. So they just declare themselves to be women and then they want to be transferred. I don't know how often this is actually happening, but it's happened a few times. So enough nice. that it's at least worth a conversation. Wow. And, and and so, but but again, all this is premised on this idea, this kind of long trajectory of more liberal, socially liberal values that we've all incorporated to the point where conservatives are more liberal than liberals were in the 50s, socially liberal. I mean, most conservatives today, you know, they, they don't object to interracial marriage. I mean, nobody, almost nobody does anymore. Pollsters don't even ask anymore. There's no point. Uh, now it's gay marriage. And it, since 2015, even conservatives have largely quit talking about it. It's like, yeah, whatever. J- Jesus loves everybody, including the gays. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and, and that's kind of how it happens. They, you know, they. they say, well, how would I feel if I was gay and I wasn't allowed to marry? Well, I wouldn't like that. So therefore, that's, that's why that's, uh, you know, laws against gay marriage are wrong. And and that so this is not a random trajectory. This is a real um, trend based on our discovery of human nature. You know that you know Lincoln famously said, "As I would not be a, a, a slave, I would not be a slave master." Uh, and he said, "You know, slavery is not wrong. Then nothing's wrong." So just you know, take that simple example. That that's the principle of interchangeable perspectives. In a way, it's the golden rule. And, you know, we've been doing that more and more for, you know, the last several centuries. And, you know, that's progress.
2: Totally
1: wow. agree. Me too.
2: Yeah. So uh, objective or subjective at the end of the day seems subjective. But I have heard a lot of philosophers, even atheist ones, who are suggesting that they think it is objective. And it's depending on what you're defining mm-hmm. that as. But um, it, I guess it depends on what we mean by that, because I asked this question in a super chat. The other night didn't get it answered uh, where the guy seemed to be more of a theistic uh, philosopher in some sense. And he was taking a different approach to morality. And I just was like, so thousands of years ago when our ancestors were actually giving the most valuable object they have, which was their firstborn son at the time, because patriarchal, patriarchal systems, um, they mm-hmm. were giving their firstborn son, sacrificing them as burnt offerings to gods, you know, Do you think they felt like this was morally wrong to do yet? They were doing it. Mm. It it just seems like there's a probably
0: not. Yeah. 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 I'm fond of asking my students after I show them all the Milgram experiments and the Nazi stuff, you know, how many of you would shock the subject to 450 volts till he's dead? And, you know, pretty much all my students go, oh, my God, no, I would never do that. Well, actually, they probably would. (laughs) Right. <laughs> they lived in the 1940s or whatever. Right. Milgram doing experiments in the 60s, you know, that, you know, we can't put ourselves back into other people's uh, cultures and think like a modern would and say, well, I wouldn't do that. Of course, you wouldn't with today's standards, but you probably would have been. Now, that said, you know, the fact that you have to, like with slavery, the fact that you have to impose it on people with chains and whips and guns and, and violence. It, it does seem to be a sign to me that they must have known that these people don't want to be enslaved. <laughs> They've got to know, because <laughs> wh- why else would you have to lock them up and beat them, right? So, right, um, you know, it, it's but the you know I have a whole section in in the moral arc on you know Christian rationalizations for slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries through sermons. There's uh, research on this. Um, Eugene Genovese and, and his his wife did this research on uh, sermons that preachers gave about uh, talking about slavery and the justification of it. It's just stunning. <laughs> they actually really seem to believe this is really the greatest thing. You know, look, we're giving them culture, we're giving them Christianity, we're going to save their souls. That life is better than it was in Africa. They just go on and on. That right. you know today just sounds completely mad, barking mad type arguments. But these were the arguments of intelligent, educated people, you know, a century and a half, two centuries ago. And so I can't say for sure I would be somehow, you know, this morally elevated guru, you know, condemning all the bad things in the past. I don't know. And uh, so I I think, you know, we just just look forward and think, you know, what's next? And, you know, that's hard to say. You know, I, I still eat meat. I try not to eat too much. But, You know, maybe a century from now, people will look look back on us and go, God, those people were barbaric. Look how they treated animals and they (laughs) ate them. It's worse than slavery. You know, it's like Auschwitz and slavery combined. They killed them and ate them. Terrible cannibalism, you know, and it's possible, you know, that 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 people will look back on us as just these barbarians. So who Mm. knows?
1: Well said.
2: Yeah, I thought about that with prison, too, by the way. I think the way that we think prison reform is going to help. B.S. Mm -hmm. Like we know we have plenty Mm -hmm. of studies now to know locking people in a box. All right. Giving them Mm -hmm. a toothbrush in a metal can to poop in. Okay. It's not helping people reform. Now there's very few people who get through it and the experience somehow helps them. Most people though, just actually become more corrupt and, and see a dark side of humanity being locked like monkeys in a cage. Mm -hmm. I think we'll look back Mm -hmm. at this and go, what the hell were we thinking? But anyway, Mm -hmm. Neil, did you have anything you wanted to add? I didn't ask if you thought objective or subjective. That's one of the things. You didn't really say, yes, objective or subjective, but I suspect
0: subjective. Oh, oh, well, again, much is loaded in those words. What do you mean by objective? Most most people think of some kind of Archimedean point outside of the earth that gives us our moral values of right and wrong. And, uh, well, first of all, Plato made short shrift of that argument back in – in, in uh, the 5th century B.C. 4th century B.C.? Anyway, Fourth. long yes, ago. And, yeah. Uh, the, Pre- the, the, yeah, thank you. The, the, the euthyphro argument, you know, that um, you know if moral values are dependent upon God or the gods saying that they are right and wrong, uh, are there reasons? Uh, did he have reasons for these? Did God have reasons? And if so, what are the reasons? And wh- why can't mm-hmm. we just skip the middleman and just use the reasons? And if it's not if there's no good reason, it's just God's whim. Well, what if God whimsically says to kill and, and, and pillage and rape and destroy the people and genocide, which he did in the Old Testament quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, So again, again, you'd have to read into it with modern ears and, or modern eyes and, 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 and find some twist to make it sound not so bad. Um, but, but anyway, none of that holds up, it doesn't. Uh, in any case, isn't it a higher moral value to just say, you should be good for goodness sake, full stop. You know, you just take it from there. How would you feel? And so on, rather than saying, well, you know, I'm getting it from this Holy book. Well, but there's more than one Holy book. So which is, which is the right one. And, and most of them, since they're old, you know, have moral values that we would find, well, pretty repulsive, really. I mean, mm. it just, I mean, you really have to spin, doctor a lot to, to make it sound not so, so drastic.
2: Okay, Dr. Shermer, I've got one for you.
0: You made a quote in your book, The Believing Brain, which
2: I've read multiple times. It's one of the most, like, it's one of the go-tos. I I ask people to really go check it out. And one of the statements, I've got to pull it up here. Um, You say, humans are no less superstitious than animals. And (laughs) that's a big one, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of humans, we like to think we know better than animals. But you're in your chapter on patternicity you're pointing mm. out that they've done these experiments and they've shown that humans fall in the same pattern trap as animals. And can you take us into that example where they set these humans, I can't remember the experiment, but they're pretty much like turning knobs and, and hitting buttons and yeah. stuff. And they yeah. think they're actually getting something out of it because it's, uh, I can't remember what it is in the brain, but there's something there they think they're going to reward well, themselves.
0: That, with. That's right. Well, you, you show those those faces in the clouds earlier. It's something like that. Just random noise. It could be just blips in in your earphones or it could be blips on a screen or patterns on the screen or a sequence of numbers. I've even seen done with a magic eight ball where you rotate the ball and, and people are pretty, but you don't show them that you're using the magic eight ball. You just give the sequence of, of answers or numbers or whatever. and People are quite certain there's a pattern there, even though there's no pattern and uh, so it's all, it, it's very difficult to not see patterns in fact the studies on on randomness and our psychological perception of randomness we have a really hard time understanding what randomness looks like and 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 the, and the reason is is because randomness has patterns to it there are clusters Again, just lots of examples. You throw a handful of pennies up in the air and they land on the ground. They're not going to be perfectly evenly distributed. There's going to be clusters. There's going to be constellations of patterns like the, the stars in the sky. Those are random. That's what randomness looks like. It looks clustered into meaningful patterns. Of course, that's all in our, our minds. Steve Gould wrote a nice essay on this, on the glowworms in Australia. You go inside these dark caves in, in the little bio fluorescent light lighting up and and the patterns are all perfectly even almost perfectly evenly distributed because they're distributed based on the allocation of of resources that they get their food from so they're all kind of spaced out so they all get the same amount of resources here something like that and but but Gould's point was that it looks like a night sky except there's no no constellations they're all just evenly distributed Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and that's non-random Right. Randomness is clustered or clustered. So I tell this in my lecture on this subject, I tell the story of, you know, when Steve Jobs first came out with the iPod and then they had the new um, random feature. What's what's it called? The um, we just randomly pluck songs out to play for you. Um, I forget what the feature is called on the iPhone now. Shuffle. In any case. Yeah, there's shuffle. Yeah, the shuffle feature. Thank you. Uh, and then uh, Apple is getting complaints from customers saying, this isn't random because I keep hearing certain songs over and over and other songs don't come up hardly at all. And It's like, that is what randomness looks like. <laughs> it's clustered. And, uh, and of course, the human mind finds those kind of clusters meaningful. So it, again, more research. yeah, subjects to flip a coin in your mind and write down what you think a random sequence of heads and tails would be. And they'll they'll do things like heads tails heads tails heads tails or heads heads tails tails heads tails heads tails heads heads tails tails, in in reality it's more like heads heads tails 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 heads 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 tails heads tail heads 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 tails 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 right long clusters so this throws people off they think well that's not random no that is random that is what randomness looks like so our whole perception of the world. Uh, I use Len, uh, Leonard Millandow's book The Drunkard's Walk uh, in my book in my class because so much of life actually is this kind of what we think of as random but in fact it's not random and, or vice versa and you know there's regression to the mean and other statistical effects, probabilistic effects that happen in clusters. Sports or movies or books or you know, sales, I mean, and it, it looks and we follow those trends up and down as if there's a causal meaning behind each increase in sales of a movie type of movie or decrease in sales of a type of book or whatever. And We think there's something behind it mm-hmm. when, in fact, there's nothing behind it. Oftentimes these things just go up and down for no reason at all. And of course, salespeople and marketing people, they want to figure out what's the cause of why did the stock market go up yesterday? And they look for causes. And, and, the, and the answer is usually for no reason at all. There's just, it just kind of bounces around randomly. And uh, so that very much throws off how we perceive the world. And of course, science has a whole set of tools to deal with that in statistics and research methodologies to control for those kinds of effects so that we don't get fooled by randomness. It's the title of another book, Fool, Fooled by Randomness. And just
2: putting in simply that statement that humans are just as superstitious as animals is because of this pattern seeking yeah, um, yeah, yeah. agency, if you will, this this assuming patternicity.
0: If anything, we're worse because we're so smart and we have language and, and conceptual ideas that we can place on top of the patterns we think we see in the randomness, all kinds of deep causes that may or may not be there. Right. So. Uh, religion being one of them and other superstitious ideas that we, you know, graft onto them, uh, or, you know, new age ideas. A so bunch of new age ideas is again, trying to figure out well, why do things happen? Everything happens for a reason. No, actually most things happen for no reason at all.
1: Just <laughs> right.
2: Wow. That's interesting. Okay. Let me bring us all three on here. This, this brings me to one of the, one of the interesting points you, you mentioned earlier, the double split experiment. And in that double-split experiment, I just I want to conclude with this particular idea. I talk to Muslims. Muslims say prophecy and other reasons why the Quran is true, and their prophet Muhammad is is, is the guy. Jesus, Christians, you know how that goes. Um, everybody's bringing their own little thing that somehow shows, well, well, Judaism and Christianity will go, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. We know the universe had a big bang. Boom, here's a way to prove way back mm-hmm. then – how we knew something, mm-hmm. you, it took you guys this long to actually start catching up. And this is the way they mm-hmm. phrase it. Well, you mentioned this double slit experiment and this guy who's coming from a Buddhist-type worldview is using the same idea. He's trying to argue mm-hmm. that the Buddhists knew all along. For me, practicality of certain things that are pragmatic, that, that work, it's common sense. After a while, you kind of figure out, okay, if I don't do that, this is what we see happening. If I do this, this is what we see happening. I'm going to start doing this because this helps or whatever it might be. The point I'm getting to is, is how, like when you're talking to these people on your own podcast that are bringing these arguments of, Oh, look at this, look at this double slit. We already knew this a long time ago. Look at, look at the big bang. We already knew this a long time ago from Judaism. Like what do you particularly, do you ever take jabs and go, look, I just don't, or are you too polite to your guests? And you're like, well, I'm going to just let these people kind Mm. of, say this, at the end of the day, whatever I say ultimately isn't going to change their beliefs. I mean, as we know, beliefs aren't really decisions we just make. They're not just simple choices. There's a lot of mm-hmm. reasoning behind why people believe in things.
1: Emotion too.
2: Right. So my question mm-hmm. is, this is a mm-hmm. big package. I don't know how you want to answer this and I don't care how you answer it. What do you do with all of that? What do you do when someone comes mm. along and they make these cases?
0: Right. Right. Another way to phrase it would be, you know, what do you do at Thanksgiving dinner coming up here when, you know, crazy Uncle Harry it says, you know, QAnon is real and Biden stole the election and Trump's really the president and blah, blah, you know. <laughs> blah. Okay well you can just keep your mouth shut that's one answer but you know if you want to say something you can challenge it but it has to be done in a, in a way that's you know polite and respectful or else you're not going to make any headway probably right. not going to change anybody's mind uh, you know that's usually not my goal in a conversation with people to change their mind right on the spot because that almost never happens people quietly change their mind later when you know they don't save face and they don't have to give up anything uh, on the spot and you know that's usually how it happens so you plant a seed of doubt maybe or just think about this, and just you know, ask probing questions. How do you know that's true? Or where'd you hear that? Or, yeah, that's super interesting, uh, but but I'm not sure uh, that, that I, I believe it. What, you know, g- give me your best arguments, or what would it take to change your mind? You know, or or you know, is there any uh, contrary evidence? Are you thinking of any examples that don't fit the theory? You know, that kind of thing. Just just ask, just ask, just asking questions, as they call it. But in this case, it's 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 a strategy, kind of a Socratic method of of um, just probing somebody's epistemology how do you know that that's true and what would it Mm. take to change your mind but you should do that in a way that's respectful you know look people in the eye nod you know actually listen to what they are saying steel man their argument try to repeat to them what you think they just said oftentimes you didn't get it right or they hear it and they think oh that doesn't sound so good let me try to rephrase that and but you know the whole point of that is to get so that we're not talking across purposes that we're talking about the same thing. We've you know, pinpointed there. It's right there. That's the thing we're talking about. Right. You think this and I think that, can, you know, how can we resolve that? That's the mm-hmm. ultimate point of conversations along those lines. And so, yeah, uh, for me, most of my of course, on my own podcast, I try to be a polite guest. Some of my listeners would rather I be a little more forceful. Uh, particularly when I have conservatives on, <laughs> so maybe I'll do that some more. But, um, you know, it's different when I'm a guest on somebody else's show, then you know, I'm more free to just kind of uh, slant hammer away on, on that. Oh, I do pound on the conservatives a lot, I have to say, and the woke left. <laughs> so uh, I, I thought yeah, you I've were alien, pretty... alienated lots of people, okay? Right.
1: So I was, I thought you were pretty good on Joe Rogan when it was you and Randall Carlson. Yeah. I thought that oh, was yeah. just, it was just really, Grant Hancock. That was a long yeah. day. Yeah, was a yes, day, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that was a but interesting. They, you know, they, they up on you, but you—I don't—I don't know if you heard this ever. Probably heard this a million times. You handled it amazingly. Like you were just, just doing good, man. Like that, that's actually how I, mm. I discovered you from actually watching that. That was, oh my, that was it, my introduction. That was my introduction to Michael Shermer. Was that podcast?
2: That's I now now I remember that I was a big fan. And don't get me wrong, I'd I'd love to talk to Randall Carlson myself just to hear some of his thoughts, but. I guess, to be polite, where do you, categor- where do you categorize him and Hancock? I mean, do you put them in the kind of- um, Graham Hancock, in-
0: yes. I, 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 yeah, alternative, well, Graham himself calls himself an alternative archaeologist. He knows what he's doing is out of the mainstream. Right. And I think in a way, he kind of likes that. He's you know kind of poking the hornet's nest, challenging the mainstream. That's okay. That right. a role for that. Uh, for outsiders to challenge the authorities, That that's okay. That's good you know cuz a lot of times they get it wrong even you know a, a, a community of people can be all wrong in the wrong direction right. you know there is a certain gateway gatekeepers there. That, that That is true with peer review and journals and publication of books and allocation of funds for research. That's true in all fields. So it's good to have someone like him. And I like Graham. He's a good guy. He's a smart guy. He's a great writer, actually. I've listened to several of his books on audio. He reads them. And of course, that British yeah. accent is yep. so charming yeah. for Americans. It elevates the quality <laughs> of the ar- argument much better when it's done with a British accent. And uh, But ultimately, I think they're wrong because of uh, their... Because of certain principles are they're, they're kind of doing what we call anomaly hunting. You know, if the mainstream theory can't explain this little thing over here, therefore the mainstream theory has a problem. No theory explains everything, right? Every mainstream theory has anomalies, unexplained phenomenon, and so on, like the UFO people, they admit that 95% of all sightings are fully explained by natural phenomena. They're hanging on to that 5%. So, what do you do with that? So, in science, you don't have to do anything with it. You just say, look, you know, this is what we know. Here's this little 5% we don't know. And, you know, maybe we'll figure it out. Maybe we won't. It's okay. This is still the best explanation for now. As opposed to taking the anomaly and then spinning that out into a whole different worldview. The aliens have come here, or the pyramids were built by this ancient. Lost <laughs> civilization, and so on. Uh, I, you, uh, you, uh, to me, that's not justified. Going that far is not justified from what we know, just from the anomalies. You know, I follow Graham on Twitter. He's always posting stuff about you know things keep getting older. Sometimes, sometimes they don't get older. You know, new information comes up and it turns out it's not what we thought it was and it's not older. Uh, you know, sometimes it is, but it depends what you what you mean by that, what to take with it. To me, I just think, well, that's how science works. You know, it t- turns out we were wrong about this. Now we found out it's that. Okay, good. Uh, but, ra- but rather alternative people tend to look at that and go, aha, you see they were wrong. And therefore the edifice, the larger edifice has a deep uh, problem. And therefore I'm going to come in and fill it in with my idea. Well, Right. You know that and everybody points to Einstein or something like this. Well he's you know quite the rare exception. And, but I also point out that Einstein published all his works in you know mainstream peer-reviewed German physics journals. There was nothing unusual. He didn't come out with some big book you know published self-published and you know he broke open the you know the whole paradigm and, and so on. He didn't. He ground away like everybody else mm-hmm. and it took you know like 20 years, uh, let's just say, from 1900 to 1920, those first big papers were 1905, but he was working before that. And you know, and it wasn't until Eddington's eclipse experiments and others confirmed in the 1920s that he became really world famous as you know a, a paradigm-shattering, uh, major intellectual giant in human history. It wasn't yeah. it, it, that didn't come overnight, and 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 he did it through the normal channels. You know, the right. whole community of physicists in Germany that he worked with they all knew each other it wasn't like he came out of nowhere you know they knew exactly where he came from Mm. and anyway so that's a that's how I think about that
1: do and I think you're I agree with most of what you're saying about Graham Hancock he's he's interesting guy but I think he's wrong about a lot of things especially when it comes to like pyramids and stuff like that but um do you think he has a sort of a point with Quebec Le Tepe or no
0: Yes, the Gobekli Tepe thing is super interesting. To me, I take that to mean that we've mis- we uh, kind of misinterpreted the capabilities um, of hunter-gatherers, uh, not, not misinterpreted, we, we've underestimated their abilities sure. to do things. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a bigotry of low expectations, as it's called. You know, that uh, these ancient peoples were so dumb, they couldn't possibly have done this. So that must have been the aliens or the ancient Atlanteans or some other lost (laughs) civilization. Maybe they're just better than we can. We understand. Maybe they were just capable of doing more than we we thought they could. Now, the argument with Gobekli Tepe is that 11,000 years ago, there was no agriculture and farming. Therefore, there was nothing to support a large population. Therefore, not enough numbers to move those big blocks around. You need a division of labor and so on. Yes, that's all true. So to me, it's like, okay, archaeologists, you got to re, reconfigure how you think about hunter-gatherers. Maybe they're just quite capable of doing big things, and we just didn't know. Right. Rather than make the leap to, you know, therefore, they couldn't have done it. Therefore, it's this ancient lost civilization. I, I don't want to go that far.
1: I don't think that's necessary. Okay. That makes sense. Uh.
2: i you know i gotta tell everybody let's read his books i i really want to have you come back and do more you finally got to meet my friend neil gnostic informant i highly (laughs) recommend everybody to go check out his uh website skeptic.com like i said if you don't want to go to hell this is where you go i mean i guess we might as well use (laughs) the same rhetorical crap that you know they are using in order to convince people to do things right so here it is you know go to skeptic.com and don't go to hell forever or don't go to skeptic.com and go to hell forever. So it's either way, also michaelshermer.com, that's his website. He's got the podcast absolutely mind-busting uh, topics that you're always talking about that just really uh, by the by the end you got to take a nap because your brain is hurting so much. I mean, it it, right. it really is amazing some of the things that you have brought to the world and and just being that avenue for people to be skeptics. It's okay in this country we have that we live in today, we can be skeptics, and we want others to kind of be encouraged to think that way, even if their epistemology leads them, let's say, to theism or something that personally they choose. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Let's let's practice skeptic, you know, tools. And I love this. So get his books. I'm going to read more, and I want to interview you more on some of your other subjects, your other books, and go from there. Neil,
1: no, it's just been my pleasure to have you on, and you know, like, like, like Derek was saying, your 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 podcast, your, your YouTube channel. It, the guests you bring on the conversations you have are just thought provoking and just on another level so go check that out everyone
0: (laughs) all right thanks guys nice to see you we'll do it again
1: you have just attained true gnosis the demiurge has no power over you